Once again, we are turning our attention to the book of Proverbs, and we're taking a bit of a different approach this morning. Uh, Rather than tracing one theme throughout the book of Proverbs, we're going to focus our attention on one passage this morning, kind of working phrase by phrase through it as we typically do. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll be looking today at verses 16 through 19. Today we're going to endeavor to get to know God better. Uh, One of the ways you can get to know someone is by learning the things that they love. Another way is by learning the things that they hate. And this particular section of Proverbs intends to teach us about God by highlighting seven things in particular that the Lord hates. If we have learned to fear the Lord, we should pay very close attention to a passage of Scripture like this. And so if you're there in Proverbs 6, let me invite us all to stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. We'll read these verses in unison. Uh, Verses 16 down through verse 19. So Proverbs 6, beginning with verse 16. There are six things. Sorry, I didn't give you a cue. Are you ready? One, two, three. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would bless us uh, during this time as we seek to learn and grow from this study of your word. I pray that each of us would be stirred in our hearts a desire to please you, to live in a way that is uh, inviting your favor, your blessing into our lives and that we would avoid these seven sins that you say you hate. Uh, Help each of us to look inward at our own hearts and lives, uh, examine for any sin that needs to be repented of. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. may be seated. A couple of quick notes on the passage before we work through these seven things. First, you may have noticed there at the beginning this pattern of numbering, sort of an odd one as an English reader. There's six things, and then he says seven. Uh, This is a very typical Hebrew poetic device that comes up several times throughout the book of Proverbs. It's referred to as a numerical ladder. Uh, Over in chapter 30 of Proverbs, you'll see this arrangement used multiple times in that chapter. For example, verse 15 says, three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. And then it goes on to list four things. Uh, Again, in verse 18 of that same chapter, three things are too wonderful for me, Four, I do not understand. Again, in verse 21, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. And in each case, that statement is followed by a list of the four things to which he is referring. So it's a fairly common practice in Hebrew literature to set up a list of things in this manner. And some have taken the phrasing to indicate that it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. Uh, Certainly, there are other things in Scripture that God tells us that he hates. For example, Uh, There are passages in the Old Testament that speak about homosexuality, uh, idolatry, cross-dressing, any number of things that God says they are abominations to him. So here in Proverbs 6, while not an exhaustive list, he is giving us seven things in particular that the Lord hates. So back to verse 16 of our text, we read there, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. It's hard to convey in English the force and severity of what is being said here in this verse. 
It is certainly no exaggeration when the ESV says that the Lord hates these things or they are an abomination to him. In fact, that might be even slightly underselling the point. The last word in verse 16 is the Hebrew word nephesh, a very unusual use of that word. It's the word that is commonly translated soul. Literally, we're being told these are seven things that are an abomination to the soul of the Lord. As the old uh, Young's literal translation of the Bible puts it, these six hath Jehovah hated, yea, seven are abominations to his soul. It's hard to think of a stronger way of saying that, that God's hatred for these seven things emanates from the deepest part of his being. Uh, The Hebrew word for abomination literally means a disgusting thing. You could say these are seven things that disgust the soul of God. Uh, Maybe the NLT gets the force of the text best when it says, these are six things that the Lord hates, seven things he detests. And this kind of statement indicates something that I believe is confirmed multiple times throughout the rest of Scripture, that there are degrees of sin in the sight of God. All of us are sinners, and any of our sins is enough to separate us from a right standing with a holy God. All sins need to be equally atoned for by the death of Christ. However, it's also true that not all sins are equal in God's sight. These seven sins God particularly emphasizes his hatred or disgust for. Struggling, I think, with some sort of innate uh, sinful tendency, some weakness, maybe something like laziness or lust, those don't seem to be put in quite the same category as murdering the innocent or devising wicked plans. There seems to be a difference between human weakness and frailty which Jesus, of course, understands. He experienced the very same thing himself. God seems to be understanding of our weakness, that sometimes we will yield to the strength of temptation. And yet there's a difference between that and intentionally making wicked choices. There are certain sins and patterns of behavior that are seen to be particularly hated by God. And so now we begin looking at these seven things. Verse 17, we see the first on the list, haughty eyes arrogance. Haughty eyes describes the attitude of those who are proud, who perceive themselves to be superior to others. Pride is a sin that God repeatedly says he hates. It's said many times in Proverbs alone. For example, in chapter 8, verse 13, we read, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Pride leads us to think we don't need God. Pride leads us to mistreat others that we think of as less important than ourselves. And pride keeps us blind to these errors so that we can never see the need to correct our thinking and behavior. It was pride, you remember, that was the original sin of Satan. And it's at the root of so many of our other sinful practices. We won't take as much time this morning on the subject of pride because we've covered that in Proverbs already. But the sin of pride is one that is covered many times in Scripture as being an attitude of the heart that particularly invites the opposition of God against you. We're told repeatedly in Scripture, God opposes the proud, that he resists those who are haughty. When we covered this subject several months ago, we looked at the example of Herod from the book of Acts, 
uh, who was being worshipped as a deity while he's giving this great speech, and he accepted that praise. He didn't stop the people from saying what they were saying, and we're told that God struck him down in that very moment, and he died. Perhaps even more vivid was that example of Nebuchadnezzar we looked at in the book of Daniel, who was driven from his palace to crawling in the field and living like an animal for seven years because of his arrogance. As Isaiah 2 verse 10 says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against the, uh, all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Pride is seen as a sin that is particularly hated by God, as you see twice in that passage, because it steals his glory. The glory, the honor that belongs only rightly to the Lord we take and apply to ourselves when we act with pride. And so pride is a sin hated by God. Next, back to Proverbs 6, we see in verse 17, after haughty eyes, the next on the list is a lying tongue. I think this is what what we might call today a habitual liar. Someone with a lying tongue is one who knowingly and intentionally seeks to deceive others. Again, we've talked at length about this in the past, But lying is antithetical to God's nature. He is a God of truth. And there is perhaps no human behavior more devilish than the sin of lying. Jesus said in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When God speaks, he speaks out of his own character. God is a God of truth. He is the father of truth. The devil at his core is a liar and a deceiver. We see all the way back in the book of Genesis that Satan lies to Eve, deceives her into taking the fruit. And this is what he's done ever since. And so for us as humans to make a practice of lying disgusts God because I think it reminds him of Satan. One of the best biblical examples of God's hatred over this sin of lying is over in Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, We'll pick up the story in chapter 4 of Acts, verse 36, which says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's this guy Barnabas at the church in Jerusalem. Uh, who did a great thing. He sold a field that he owned. He brought the money to the church and basically donated it. Great act of generosity. And this led another man in the church named Ananias to do something similar. He saw the praise, the glory that Barnabas was getting for this action. And so verse 1 of chapter 5 says, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they wanted the praise that Barnabas got for his generosity, but they didn't really want to give all of the money that they had made from this sale. And so they sold the property, they kept back part of the money, and they gave some to the church. Verse 3, But Ananias said, I'm sorry, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5 says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, it's important to note what Peter said there in verse 4. The sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed was not that they kept back some of the money. He clearly tells them it was your field. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. When you sold it, you could have kept all of the money. The issue was their deception. It was a lie that they had arranged together to bring part of the proceeds and make it look like they were donating all of it. And this lie angered God so much that he struck Ananias dead. Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. So again, Sapphira clearly lying here saying uh, that this was all that they had made. Verse 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet And breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God hates a lying tongue. This is again one of those sins I think we often downplay how severely this angers the Lord. As we read this section in Acts chapter 5, it might seem shocking to us uh, that God would strike them dead simply for telling this lie. And yet that reveals to us how casually we lie, how little we think of the severity of what we're doing. Lying is a devilish practice, and God hates a lying tongue. Next on this list of seven things that God says he hates, back to verse 17 of Proverbs 6, we read, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Human beings are made in the image of God. We see that right in the very first pages of Genesis. We bear his likeness. We were created to represent God on earth. And so to take the life of an innocent person is a sin against the one whose image he bears. The very first act of this particular sin, the shedding of innocent blood, is detailed for us in Genesis chapter 4. Verse 1 says that Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flocks and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8 says that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. A few chapters later in Genesis, God institutes the death penalty for those who commit this particular sin. In Genesis 9, verse 6, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Innocent blood must be protected and valued. Putting to death murderers is, in fact, a protection of innocent life. It values the innocence of the life that was taken. It is justice where a terrible injustice has taken place. And it is because God made man in his own image, as he says here, that shedding the blood of man requires this severe sentence. And again, uh, it's hard to even talk about this without bringing up the issue of abortion. This is why abortion should anger us. We ought to hate the things that God says he hates. And there is nothing in our nation that God hates more than abortion. The abortion industry is responsible for over 63 million innocent babies being killed in the last 50 years. And just like Abel in Genesis 4, the cries of all that innocent blood is going up to the Lord every day. Thankfully today, there are some states that have finally begun to institute laws protecting the life of the innocent child in the womb. But we as the church must do our job in educating all who fear the Lord that this is a sin that the soul of God hates. Our generation has been unfortunately discipled by a godless culture to believe that human life is of no value, that we can choose to keep life or slaughter it. And it's our job as representatives of Jesus, to speak the truth to a disobedient age, to prophetically call for repentance, and to say very clearly that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Next on this list of seven, returning to Proverbs 6, we read in verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. Here we're talking about willful and premeditated acts of evil. Again, this is where we get into some of the difference between committing a sin in a moment of weakness and temptation versus scheming and planning to sin. Both are wrong, but the latter is what's being described here as something God hates. One of the best descriptions of this sort of scheming, uh, devising of wicked plans is found in Micah chapter 2, verse 1, which says, Woe to those who devise wickedness, And work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hands. So here is someone who is planning and plotting their sin ahead of time, and then carrying it out. For an example of this, we'll look at King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Of course, there's many examples in Scripture we could talk about, but this is a very uh, clear one. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And here's where we get into the scheming and the planning of evil on the part of King David. Instead of owning up to his sin at this time and repenting, he tries to cover it up. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, that's his military leader. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite, one of the soldiers. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked Joab how, I'm sorry, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. And Uriah, I'm sorry, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, you remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But again, he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out, they fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So it seems David's evil plan succeeded. But David paid dearly for the sins that he had committed. God sent a prophet in the next chapter to rebuke him and to warn him of the punishment that he would endure as a result of this evil act. One of David's sons was killed in the next chapter by another one of his sons. Then in chapter 15, David's son tried to overthrow him from his throne and take control of his kingdom. And King David's top advisor, a man named Ahithophel, betrayed David and joined the rebellion with his son. And as you study the genealogies in the Old Testament and compare them with the list of David's mighty men, you'll find that Ahithophel, this man who betrayed him, was Bathsheba's grandfather. This act of evil that David committed in 2 Samuel 11, this scheming plan to cover his son and to kill this innocent man Uriah to cover his sin, it ended up causing David heartache and pain for the rest of his life. Next, verse 18, we'll move faster with these. It says, after a heart that devises wicked plans, God hates feet that make haste to run to evil. This is describing someone who displays no resistance to sin. They are very quick to yield to temptation. A sinful thought or idea enters their mind and they make haste to run to do it. Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. All of us will be tempted to sin, and at times all of us will yield to that temptation. But for the Christian, we are called to do war against our sinful flesh. We are not to just let sin reign over us and have dominion over our lives. As Paul goes on to say in this chapter, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're supposed to be servants of Christ. And so feet that make haste to run to evil are those that are still serving sin. We as Christians are called to resist the devil and to fight temptation, not to surrender to it. You may have noticed that the first five on this list of seven are all body parts that are being misused. The tongue is being used to lie. The hands are being used to shed innocent blood and so forth. Now, as we move to the last two things on the list of things that God hates, these are sins against the communities in which we live. No longer are we talking about internal sins that are personal to us, but sins against others. Proverbs 6, verse 19 begins with a false witness who breathes out lies. First, a false witness who breathes out lies. This is, again, similar to the lying tongue from earlier, but here we're zeroing in on a particular form of lying that is given special attention. This would be what we would call today slander. It is a false accusation. It's a lie that could send an innocent person to jail or even lead them to be put to death. Uh, this is what the ninth commandment means when it says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's a little more specific than just saying don't lie. It's saying don't falsely accuse someone else. If you want to see how seriously God takes this issue, look at Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. This is where God is giving their, uh, the law codes to Israel, how to handle issues that come up uh, among the people. Verse 16 says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, so there's an investigation that's supposed to take place, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So God is saying to them, basically, those who bring a charge against someone else, if they are found to be lying, they are to receive the punishment that they were trying to bring on the innocent person. This is what God says justice looks like in the case of false accusations. Twice in these verses in Deuteronomy, God calls a false accusation or a false witness against someone else evil. It is a sin, again, that the very soul of God detests. Last of the seven things God hates, Proverbs 6, verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. God desires for us to live at peace and, with uni and to have unity with one another. As Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard and on the beard of Aaron, running down to the collar of his robes. It is like dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, 
For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Charles Bridges, commenting on this verse, says, If the heavenly dew descends upon the brethren that dwell together in unity, a withering blast will fall on those who cause divisions for their own selfish ends. Jesus said in the Gospels that our love for one another as brothers in Christ is something that should differentiate us as Christians. We ought to be known for our unity and love for one another. Particularly, this should be true, again, of Christians who have been called together to form one family in the body of Christ. Someone purposefully causing disruption to the peace of brothers is reprehensible in the sight of God. And much of Paul's writings to the churches in the New Testament is dealing with this very issue. People who are causing divisions in the church. Church members who are fighting with one another, often for very silly reasons. Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Sowing discord among brothers, this isn't merely a bad habit. It is a sin that God hates. And as Paul says, such persons do not serve the Lord Christ. Well, we spent most of our time today looking at the characteristics God hates, but I wanted to end by looking at the opposite. What are the things God loves? And to discover what God loves, you really only need to look at the opposites of the things on this list. Humility, truthful speech, preservation of life, pure thoughts, an eagerness to do good, an honest witness, and peaceful harmony. Or if you want to put it as Jesus did, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You'll notice in these verses, again, you have a list of seven things that are described. And each one is describing a person who is the opposite of the portrait of evil in Proverbs 6. Rather than having haughty eyes, they are meek and poor in spirit. Rather than having hands that shed innocent blood, they are merciful. Rather than a heart that devises wicked plans, these are said to be pure in heart. Rather than having feet that make haste to run to evil. These are instead hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And rather than sowing discord among brothers, these are said to be peacemakers. And so they receive the blessing of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied and comforted. They shall see God and be called the children of God. When Proverbs 6 describes those who face God's judgment and anger, Matthew 5 describes those who will experience God's blessing and favor. It's also important to point out that although God is quite clear in Proverbs 6 that these seven things uh, he hates, that does not mean they are unforgivable sins. Listen to the words of Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This 51st Psalm, by the way, was written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And although that sin cost him dearly, although it angered God and brought judgment on him and his family, he was forgiven. 
And this is the wonder of Christianity, that although we are totally undeserving sinners, God extends mercy to us and offers us restoration and redemption from our sin. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love in Christ was extended to us while we were still in our sins, committing these acts that God says are abhorrent and detestable to his soul. He sent Christ to pay for our sins and offer us redemption. And so even those who have committed some of these seven sins that God says he hates, he still offers them a full pardon if they will repent. Just to look at a clear example of this, even those who killed Jesus, hands that were guilty of shedding the most innocent blood of all, God offered them a full pardon on the day of Pentecost if they would repent. And as we know, 3,000 of them did, and 3,000 were added to the church that day. These are the people who called out for the blood of Christ just a week before. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, as Christians seeking to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord, we need to fear God enough to avoid these sins that he hates. Uh, I know none of us in this room, I hope, would want to invite the opposition, the anger of God against us. And I think that's one reason this list of seven sins is given to us in Proverbs 6, to warn the wise person who is seeking to live in the favor and blessing of God to avoid these characteristics at all costs. As Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Part of fearing the Lord, living a life in, uh, in pursuit of pleasing God, is hating the things that he calls evil, hating the things that God hates. Those things that God says are detestable in his sight should be things that we fight against and run from. We should hate the things God hates and love the things God loves. He defines good and evil, and we are to accept and submit to what he has said. We need to develop a biblical view of justice. We need our consciences to be informed and directed by what God has said about what is good and what is evil. And as Christians, we especially need to investigate our own lives and repent of whatever areas of life we ourselves may be guilty of these very sins. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's pray together.